Hello and welcome to Can't Make This Up, a history podcast where we interview historians and authors on their latest work in the world of history. My name is Kevin, I am your host. Today I am excited to bring you a special guest interview. I feel like this has been one of my favorites so far, so let's just dive right into it. In 1867, Sarah Breedlove was the first in her family to be born into freedom after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, which had abolished slavery four years earlier. It is doubtful that any in her family could have guessed the remarkable course her life would take. Sarah came of age working as a domestic servant and as a washerwoman, but she had far grander dreams and was determined that her young daughter would receive a formal education. So she became an entrepreneur and developed her own hair care product. Ultimately, she became Madam C.J. Walker, owner of a successful company that employed thousands of women, a philanthropist, a social activist, and the first woman to become a millionaire in American history. Today I am joined by Madam C.J. Walker's biographer and great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, to discuss her book, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. Before becoming a historian, Alelia had a 30-year career in journalism as an Emmy Award-winning producer for ABC News and NBC News. On Her Own Ground has received numerous awards since its publication in 2001 and was adapted into the four-part fictionalized miniseries Self-Made by Netflix in 2020 starring Octavia Spencer. Today, Alelia and I discuss what made her great-great-grandmother such a successful businesswoman how she engaged with her contemporaries in the emerging civil rights movement, figures like Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Ida B. Wells, and how her legacy is remembered today. Let's get to it. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools Welcome to Can't Make This Up. My guest today is Alelia Bundles. Alelia, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Totally my pleasure, Kevin. Glad to be here. Uh, so if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your connection to a very impressive historical figure. Well, I grew up next door in Indiana, in Indianapolis, and Madam neighbor Walker is my great-great-grandmother, uh, and I am also her biographer. Okay, and you have an a extensive career in journalism as well. That's right. I, when I was growing up, both of my parents worked in hair care. My mother is vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, and my dad at an, as president of another hair care company. But my passion was writing, and I followed that into a career as a journalist and worked for 30 years, about half and half at NBC News and ABC News. All right, wonderful. And I can uh, somewhat connect to that uh, and, and the story we're going to talk about. Uh, my mom, uh, for all of her life, worked in the hair care industry, um, you know, independent, single mom, running her own hair salon. Uh, so this story resonates with me. 
Absolutely. That was creating economic independence for women was Madam Walker's goal. So <laughs> your mom got that message. Yes, for sure. Uh, so how did you first come to learn about the story of your great-great-grandmother? Is it something you'd always known? Did you learn it a little bit later in life? It came in little steps when I was still a toddler and my mother and I would visit the apartment that had been my grandparents' apartment. My grandmother was no longer living, but while my mother and her father sat in the living room talking, I was in my grandmother's bedroom going through dresser drawers where I discovered things that had belonged to her and to Alelia Walker, Madam Walker's daughter, and to Madam Walker. Things like uh, mother of pearl opera glasses and ostrich feather fans. So I was learning about them before I had any idea who they were. And then my mother went to work every day at the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. So sometimes I would go with her to her office and visit the factory where the ladies were still putting the products into the jars by hand. So I was learning bits and pieces about them along the way. All right, and so what made you decide to write a biography about her? And, and the, the title of your biography uh, is um, On Her Own Ground, uh, and people can also find it uh, titled Self Made as well, um, but it, it's the same book. Uh, but what made you uh, decide to write this uh, really masterfully done uh, biography? But to tell you the truth, the very last thing I thought when I was growing up that was that I would spend now almost every day, all day, writing about Madam Walker and talking about her because I really wanted to be a journalist and to follow that path. But when I was at Columbia University in the Graduate School of Journalism in the mid-1970s, my advisor, Phyllis Garland, who was the only black woman on the faculty and who'd been a, a reporter for Ebony and Jet and whose mom had been an editor at the Pittsburgh Courier, a really famous black newspaper. When we sat down to talk about my topics for my graduate paper, uh, I did what I'm sure lots of graduate students do. I gave some really boring topics. <laughs> and at the end of the conversation, Bill said to me, your name is Alelia. Do you have any connection to Madam C.J. Walker and Alelia Walker? And I said, yeah, that's my family. And she said, that's what you're going to write about. So it really was the power of a professor. Phyllis uh, recognized that unusually spelled name with the A apostrophe capital L and really set me on a path. Well, very good that she did that. Um... So let's dive into, into the story a little bit. Um, Madam C.J. Walker was born as Sarah Breedlove. Uh, and what kind of world was she born into? Madam Walker, born Sarah Breedlove, 1867, December of 1867, two days before Christmas and two years after the Civil War, on the same plantation in Madison Parish, Louisiana, where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. So the very first child in her family born free. And it was a particularly significant area. The plantation, the Bernie plantation, had been the staging area for Grant and Sherman during the siege of Vicksburg. So that meant I was able to find all kinds of amazing uh, research in at the National Archives. And the Bernie family still owned the property. So through the years, I have come to know the Bernies. But that area had been one of the wealthiest areas in America because it was such a rich cotton growing place. And it was 90% Black. 
during slavery. And that meant after emancipation, it was 90% black, which meant a lot of political power for African-Americans. Her family minister, Curtis Pollard, had been elected to the state Senate. But of course, as we know, that election of 1876 was a big backlash election and that political power was taken away from the people who had been you know moving upward moving forward now uh she has a a, a rough childhood um you know quite a few incidents happen and, and and how did that childhood and then her life as a young single african-american mother how did that shape her character into a businesswoman when we think about the amazing arc of her life, born on this plantation, but by the time she was seven, both of her parents had died. Her sister, she moved in with her sister and her brother-in-law, and she said her brother-in-law she was cruel. She said he was so cruel that I married at 14 to get a home of my own. Her bro older brothers, who had been, you know, it had some status, relatively speaking, in the community, had moved away when she was about 10. They'd moved north to St. Louis. And so she was really by herself um, and in an, in an abusive situation. So she married a man named Moses McWilliams when she was 14. They had one daughter, Lelia, when she was 17. And Moses died when she was 20. So she knew she wasn't moving back in with the sister and brother-in-law. So she moved up the river, up the Mississippi River, to St. Louis, where her brothers were now barbers. And so this, I assume, gets her thinking about the issue of hair. Uh, what kind of um, hair issues did she have to deal with? And, and how did she f make her, invent her own product to deal with it? So definitely she had a, a stressful life, um, which would, could contribute to her hair falling out. But it was also at a time when most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing. So while we don't like to think about the details of this too much, hygiene was really different. And so it meant that she was losing her hair with bad scalp infections and dandruff. And she, she wanted, like all women, you know, like all of us, she wanted to feel beautiful. And she was a part of a community. She was a member of St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And the more middle-class women of the church were trying to help her. She was in the choir. She wanted to make a nice presentation. And her story is, she said, I felt so ashamed of my frightful appearance that I prayed to the Lord for a solution. And one night in a dream, a big African man appeared and told me what to mix up for my formula. Some of the ingredients came from Africa. I sent for them. I applied them to my scalp. And my hair began to grow back faster than it had ever fallen out. Now, I have to say, I think that's part of the truth. <laughs> I, you know, I, her contemporaries like Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein also had these kind of mythical beauty formula stories. That was part of the being a beauty maven. But it's also true that her brothers had been barbers, that she uh, worked for a while for a woman named Annie Malone, who became her big competitor. Uh, their formulas were very similar, but there were also other products already on the market, not focused on Black women and targeted to Black women, but things like Cuter Cura. This is a basic formula of uh, an ointment like Vaseline and sulfur as a curative agent. So she did a combination of all of those things she had learned. She moved from St. Louis to uh, Denver in 1905 
worked for a while as a cook for the biggest pharmacist uh, west of the Mississippi River. And I think he also helped her kind of tweak her formula. And then her good friend, Charles Joseph Walker, a newspaper sales agent in St. Louis, moved to Denver. They got married. With this new formula, she started marketing it as Madam C.J. Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. Yeah, because you list some of the ingredients that are in it, and it, it doesn't sound like just something would know about, some, something that someone would know about just run of the mill. Right. You know, well, but it was when you, it actually, this formula is really centuries old. It's really, really basic. And, you know, you think it's a time, we, we, penicillin hasn't really been discovered yet. Aspirin is still relatively new. Medicine is still pretty primitive. But in some of the old medical textbooks, there is this formula of, a, of an ointment, a, a sort of a heavy ointment. And then you put something like sulfur or carbolic acid. Sometimes people use it. And that, when, once you cleansed the scalp and it was clean, if you applied something that had sulfur in it, that then was acted as a way uh, to lessen the dandruff and heal some of the sores. So it had been around, but, the, but commercially available, something like that wasn't widely available or affordable for a lot of people. And so she starts off, this is really a mom and pop enterprise, right? She's making it in her kitchen. Uh, Absolutely. How does she grow that up, though, into a national company? Yes. The, where, where was the venture capital? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was sweat. It was sweat equity. When she was in Denver, she was, um, she did a little door-to-door -door sales, but by and large, she, she needed a stable place, a, a room in her house, in her apartment, because you had to demonstrate the product. So this was a way for, she had to be able to wash people's hair. And so she started out, she would, be, she, she took out ads in the newspaper and um, said, bring your towel, <laughs> you know, I'm open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And women would come by, she would demonstrate the um, system, and then she would sell them a tin of her wonderful hair grower and of her shampoo. She started, tra she traveled from Denver to some of the small towns in Colorado, some of the mining towns, because even though there was a small black population, there were always black people because there were people who needed to do the domestic work, which were the jobs available to black women. So she knew she had a little bit of a market, but clearly Colorado then as now had a pretty small black population. So if she was going to scale up, she had to start traveling. So she moved on for, to Kansas, to Texas, to Missouri, uh, then to the Southern and Eastern United States with, with much bigger black populations. And how does she, um she's really kind of a marketing genius. How does she really know her audience and know how to sell her product to her audience? I, I think you're absolutely right. She really was a marketing genius. And, and that is one of those things you think, if I could only talk to her, how did you know? But I think some of the seeds were planted from observing the women in her church. So St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church has a long tradition of being a more educated congregation. So there were school teachers, there were women who were suffragists who were involved in a national organization called the National Association of Colored Women. 
there was a women's auxiliary to the Black Knights of Pythia. So she observed these women. They even had, had conventions in her church and she could see the power of women organized. And she knew she had benefited from their mentoring. And she took those lessons and applied them as she was starting to train her sales agents. As she traveled around, as she and her husband, uh, CJ Walker traveled around, she would, much to my surprise, I've been able to find ads in papers as early as 1906 and 1907, now that so much is digitized, where she'd take out an ad because she was going to a town and she'd say, I'm going to be at this church or this community hall on this date. Um, please come for a lecture. She'd give a big lecture. And she had seen people give lectures in her church, sometimes with what is what would be kind of a PowerPoint presentation now, but called a stereopticon, an illustrated lecture. So she had seen that kind of thing. And she'd give a lecture to a big audience. And then after the big lecture, she would invite a smaller group of women, maybe 10 or 12 women, to come to the basement of the church and she would demonstrate her system. And she would watch who was the woman who asked the best questions, who did the other women gravitate towards, and she would make that person her lead agent. And then she would move on to the next city. So she really did have this sense of um, showing images, showing pictures, showing success, and then picking leaders. And she just kind of innately understands this because it's not as if she attended a seminar or went through a training program. No, absolutely. But I do think I do think that there is something really key about these other women uh, in the church, some of whom the National Association of Colored Women was founded in 1896. And it included women like Mary Church Terrell, who had been educated, who'd gone to Oberlin, who traveled in Europe some who were teachers. And so these were women, surprisingly to most people, who did have a degree of sophistication. And she did, was not formally educated. She was really a very much a self-educated person, but she took lessons from them. And she could see, I mean, in some ways could model herself after what they were doing. Um, and that's part of why she adopts the title Madam. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, this madam is kind of a, it's like, it's a, a bit of an affectation. And I think she knew that she was pushing herself out there. And if you look in old newspapers, you'll see that women who owned boarding houses or who um, were caterers, they business women, they would call themselves madam. And then I also have to joke because women who had illegal businesses also used that <laughs> title. <laughs> Not that kind of madam. Not that kind of madam. <laughs> So she, you know, she grows this business into a huge enterprise, just so the audience has a conception of what we're talking about. Just how successful did she become? Madam Walker trained thousands of women. She traveled all over the United States, the Caribbean and Central America, made that trip in 1913. And by the time she died in 1919, the company was claiming to have trained 20,000 women. Now, it's a combination of her personal teaching as well as her agents who were also training women. There were sometimes mail order courses. She held conventions. She held her first convention in 1917 with more than 200 women who came from all over the United States. And she began to invest in real estate so that by the time she died in May of 1919, she was a millionaire. 
And we're fortunately able to document that because she surrounded herself with a great C-suite, <laughs> you know, her general counsel, her general manager, her secretary, her bookkeeper, they kept great records, which we still have. So we know every year when her lawyer general manager did an annual report, we know down to the penny how much her sales were. Um, and that kind of brings me to a tangent question I, I was curious about your research for this, did she leave any kind of documents, any, you know, correspondence or diaries, or uh, it looks like you have plenty of financial records to work with. I am a really lucky person who, in writing a biography, because Madam Walker and her attorney, F.B. Ransom, wrote to each other almost every day when she was traveling. And she traveled a lot. So we have literally hundreds of pages of their correspondence and as well as the business records, as well as photographs, she had this sense of documenting her life, whether it was taking photographs. She went on a trip to um, Delta, Louisiana in 1916, long after she was successful, but she traveled to her hometown and hired a photographer to take a photograph of the cabin where she had been born. So she was able to say, here's when she could do her PowerPoint, her stereopticon, she could show this was my birthplace, just like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, when she built her mansion, here's my mansion. So she understood the power of story, of telling her story and of documenting uh, what she did. Now, as she becomes this, um, you know, CEO essentially of a, of a major company, um, that's unusual for a, for a woman to be in that position relative to her husband. Um, how, did, how does that affect their, her marriage to, to Mr. C.J. Walker? Yeah, so it, it was challenging because the, I, when C.J. Walker was her third husband, first husband was Moses McWilliams, second husband was John Davis, and that was, you know, just not a great marriage. It was when she was still really poor and he wasn't a great guy. But then CJ, they meet each other in uh, St. Louis and he's an advertising guy for a black newspaper and she's starting her, starting to do her sales. And they seem to be really well matched. They both have ambition and they have great ideas and they're feeding off of each other. She makes the decision to leave St. Louis and move to Denver to, to get a fresh start. And then he joins her. So there, it looks like things are going well. They're, you know, on the road together. But there's a point where she really, her ambition really outstrips his. And he's kind of, they're making enough money and he's satisfied that he has enough. And she later told a reporter, um, due to my husband's narrowness of vision, <laughs> we parted ways. But what she didn't say to that reporter is that he, in fact, started having an affair with one of her with one of her agents? Uh, so, sure. you know, it just I, it was just one of those things where she was really ready to keep moving, and he was kind of happy where they were. I mean, it comes through in the book. She really uh, is shoots for the moon. Yeah, and I, you know, you you think about it, what her life had been that she was she was really a comet that she was thirty eight years old when she was still a washerwoman and 38 years old when she was really starting this trajectory to success. And I think pretty quickly she began to realize that it wasn't just about 
selling hair care products and how much money you could make, but she could see that there was an opportunity to really empower other women. So the hair care products in some ways became a means to an end. And she could see what these women who were part of this national, national suffrage movement, National Association of Colored Women, that these women were making a difference in their community during an era of Jim Crow, when there was so much stacked against uh, African-Americans. And there were enough people now encouraging her that she, I think, really felt a, a mission to, to use this platform to make a difference. Hey guys, I hope you've been enjoying this conversation I've been having with Alelia Bundles about her great-great-grandmother. I want to take a little break to tell you about another podcast run by one of my history friends, Courtney. It's called The Cult of Domesticity. You're going to hear from her in a second, but she has a really interesting podcast. Uh, it's got an episode up right now on the unsolved death of actress Natalie Wood. She has one coming up very timely on the great influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. So definitely worth checking out. Here she is. Do you love true crime, history, and mysterious happenings? Every week on The Cult of Domesticity, a guest and I discuss a different historical happening, a true crime story, or whatever strikes our fancy. Join me, Courtney, every Thursday to hear some fascinating tales from some fascinating people wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, if we could maybe take a step back and, and situate her in that early 20th century civil rights movement. Um, you know, it's not a necessarily unified movement. There's a couple of different uh, approaches. Uh, where does she fall into that? She is a, she's an interesting, um, unusual character because, as you say, there were... Black people were not a monolith. There were definitely people from the conservative to the progressive uh, part of the spectrum. And uh, Frederick Douglass died in 1895. He had been the premier African-American leader, the go-to mm -hmm. spokesperson. And when he died, right during that same year, Booker T. Washington made a big speech at the, the Cotton States Exposition. And he was the kind of um, accommodationist, we need to get along kind of person. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, almost in a cliche kind of way, but it, they got pitted against each other was W.E.B. Du Bois, who was the NAACP and much more radical and much more militant. So somewhere along that spectrum, um, a lot of Black people uh, sort of fell in line. But Booker T. Washington was more powerful, and he wielded a lot of power behind the scenes. And there were people who felt that they had to go along with what Booker T. Washington was saying. Madam Walker, I find very interesting because as a woman, she was outside of their circles, and she was also making money because her customers were women. So she found herself able to interact with all of them, with W.E.B. Du Bois, with A. Philip Randolph, who was considered quite militant, though years later when we see that the, by the 1963 March on Washington, he's kind of a moderate. But W.E.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph, Booker T. Washington, Marcus Garvey, 
the whole spectrum of people, she doesn't owe anything to any of them. And so she can find what is it about each one of them whose position I may like, or what can I support? I don't have to agree with everything they're doing, but in her mind, if they are doing something for the race, I am going to find common cause. And as she does that, she really kind of discovers her own wealth and, and her own, it can be used as a platform to, to kind of address the issues facing Black Americans. How does she do that? She sees that women need to be economically independent. There's no, nothing for them to fall back on. And so often Black men are denied jobs, especially most people are not well-educated. So women are working outside the home. And she knows that being, you know, being a cosmetologist, being a Walker beauty culturist gives those women some economic independence. So at her first convention in 1917, it is the same summer as the St. Louis massacre when a few dozen African-Americans are really slaughtered in, uh, in East St. Louis. And I, I have to say it's, it is parallel to this past summer when George Floyd was killed, that the, the reaction, the national reaction to that with a big march in New York, the silent protest parade, which she helped organize on the executive committee. There were newspaper articles, there were protests all over the country. A lot was written about it. That she, when she had this convention in 1917, people were still very much exercised about that incident. So at the convention, she gave prizes to the women, not who had just sold the most products, but who had contributed the most to charity. And at the end of the convention, the women sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson, urging him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. And after the silent protest parade in New York, where 10,000 Black New Yorkers marched up Fifth Avenue, she and a group of Harlem leaders traveled to Washington, D.C. to present a petition to Woodrow Wilson. So she was becoming, she had moved to New York by now, and she was becoming increasingly militant. This made her attorney quite nervous. <laughs> he, was, he said, you know, you, there are other people who they don't have as much to lose. You have a big business. You will be circumscribed, he said. But she felt that she owed this to her community and that she wanted to be outspoken. And in fact, when she had the opening party when she moved into her mansion, Villa Luaro, in August of 1918, a year later, her honored guest was Emmett Scott, who'd been Booker T. Washington's um, sort of chief of staff, who now was the secretary for Negro affairs in the War Department. And he was her honored guest. And he became quite concerned because she was being outspoken and had invited some people who were quite militant to the opening. And at the uh, opening party, she talked about the rights of Black soldiers in who were fighting in France. And that made some people in the government nervous. But she was um, feeling her independence and feeling that she needed to use that platform to speak up. Uh, I, I think that this part of the story is what makes her this really compelling three-dimensional person, as opposed to somebody who just became very successful in, in her field. Um, you know, even though she broke barriers along the way, um, you know, she really became a, a somebody pushing for social change. 
you know, this is why, this is what made me love her. I think having grown up in a, you know, in a household where my mom was the vice president of the company and, and people didn't really know a lot about Madam Walker. So it was like, okay, this is interesting. But what really got me interested was when I began to discover this, um, her desire for social justice to discover when I read Ida B. Wells's memoir, A Crusade for Justice, that they had known each other and that Ida B. Wells admired her and that Madam Walker had supported the anti-lynching movement. And then what truly <laughs> was the tipping point for me was when I discovered that she and Ida B. Wells had been spied upon by a black spy in the War Department named Walter Loving, who labeled them Negro subversives. There is um, military intelligence, uh, there are military, military intelligence records at the National Archives where these two women are called Negro subversives. And I'm like, this is great. This is as good as being on the Nixon enemies list. <laughs> that, right. This is, uh, you know, this is J. Edgar Hoover type stuff here. Right. And he was just getting started in, right. in the, at the FBI at that point. So, you know, your book is primarily about, you know, Madam C.J. Walker, um, but uh, you you mentioned somewhere early on, I think, that, that you initially wanted to talk, uh, wanted to look into her daughter, Lelia Walker, uh, who I'm, I'm guessing is your namesake. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about her? She's an interesting figure, too. Sure. When I, start, when I started writing this book, which came out in 2001, so it was a long time ago, I really imagined that I was doing a double biography, a mother-daughter biography, because both women are so interesting. And as I began to write, I thought, Alelia Walker really needs her own story. So I tried to develop the relationship between mother and daughter in On Her Own Ground. But I always knew when I was finishing that, that I was going to write another book, a separate book, which I'm almost finished with now. My biography on Alelia Walker called The Joy Goddess of Harlem will come out in the fall of 2021. But it is a very interesting relationship because when you, you have a sort of famous first-generation self-made entrepreneur, the children can never live up to <laughs> the parents. It's just like, it just doesn't, it very rarely happens. So we did see um, Tiger Woods' son <laughs> playing golf the other day, who seems like he may, he may live up to his dad's. But usually it's, uh, it's tough. Uh, it's tough for that next generation. But Alelia Walker really spent time trying to carve her own niche. And she worked with the company. She had some good ideas. She was the one who um, suggested they be in Harlem, which I think elevated their uh, reputation and their profile. But ultimately, her contribution is as a patron of the arts. She, they both loved music, and during the twenty during the Harlem Renaissance, Alelia Walker had the houses her mother had built. She had inherited her mother's money. She knew all the writers and artists and musicians and actors of that era. So her place became the meeting place. And she also traveled internationally and made speeches like her mother, but she wasn't the you know, worried about the details of the business. That was being run by the manager, by the attorney, by the, the factory uh, forelady. But she was hosting these amazing events, kind of a, as an impresario. And she's in, um, 
in such a cool period to look at with the 1920s and the jazz age and the Harlem Renaissance. Um, I bet that's going to be a very, very interesting biography. Yeah, it, it is. You know, it is. Madam Walker's story is the kind of, you know, hard driving businesswoman, the arc of the story. And Olivia Walker's story has so conflict, you know, between mother and daughter, but it's also truly, it's the jazz age. It's all of these amazing people from uh, Burt Williams to Ada Overton Walker to James Weldon Johnson. Um, just, it's just the Florence Mills. It's just an amazing era. This first generation out of slavery coming to the cities, really spreading their wings. So I, I can't wait for people to be read about her. And I will say that mo much of what has been written about her, when people, whenever people write about the Harlem Renaissance, they kind of had the same paragraph. Uh, Madam Walker made the money. Alilia Walker spent the money. She had parties. The end. And I'm I'm really eager for her to not be portrayed as such a caricature. <laughs> I guess the the last thing I wanted to ask you is how has um, uh, Madam Walker's memory changed over time? Um, because you know as as social movements change, as we move forward in time, we think about things differently. So how has the way we remembered Madam C.J. Walker changed? Absolutely. Even since I've been writing about her, and I really started writing about her when I was a senior in high school, which is 50 years ago. <laughs> and at that point, she was the woman who made hair care products. Mm -hmm the main thing that people knew about her wasn't actually true. People thought, oh, she's the woman who invented the hot comb. So that actually was a myth, not true. But what I've been able to do and what other scholars have been able to do is to really create this woman in full who had a hair care company, but who also was very much involved as a patron of the arts, as a person interested in social justice, who was creating an industry and who was empowering women, who was creating generational wealth. So now that we can see her as something more than just a little teeny footnote in history, we can see that she was very much a part <clears throat> of a movement of people who were her contemporaries like Ida B. Wells, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, James Weldon Johnson, and really see her in that era of people between the Civil War and World War I. So I'm glad to be able to see that she's getting her due and in, in a sense, in conversation with all these other people. Now, the, as you know, there was this Netflix series that was loosely based <laughs> on my nonfiction, very well-researched book, played marvelously by Octavia Spencer, who- v Very well job. done. Yeah, okay, when great. quarantine hit, my wife and I binged the whole thing in two nights. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you were entertained by it. Um, but for people who really know history, it's not really historically accurate. So I'm, the silver lining for me is that more people know Madam Walker's name, but now we want them to actually read the book and, and find out the facts about, about her life. Yeah, the, uh, your book is 300-ish pages of, you know, very well-researched, uh, you know, narrative about her life. And I think the Netflix series is, what, four 45-minute episodes? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's not, the, the, as people say, you know, it is a minor miracle when something actually makes it to the screen. And I am totally 
totally get that. Um, but I think that when somebody is writing a script, that they have a choice on what they want to emphasize. And I think in this particular case, the uh, the writer sort of fell in love with the idea of two women being in competition with each other and went with a narrative that was not very close to reality. That said, it still was amazing to see prosperous Black people in the early 20th century, which is something I think most audiences, no matter who they are, just really don't know happen. And to look at this first generation out of slavery, people who are creating organizations and institutions and businesses, and to really just give us a little bit of a, a taste of that. Um, we are, it, th this recently, uh, August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was on Netflix. I really enjoyed that, but I knew it wasn't, I knew it wasn't accurate history. I knew it was a play that, that uh, August Wilson uh, wrote, and so I wasn't expecting it to be uh, as true to to history, uh, and not certainly not a documentary. But I really would love at some point to see a Madam Walker series that that really focused a little bit more on her social activism, her philanthropy, the real relationships with people like Ida B. Wells Barnett, and you know, not so much this fictitious cat fight between two women. <laughs> uh, now, I will say on on that uh, point one because uh, I teach a, a history course uh, every semester and, and one of the assignments I have them do is do a film analysis paper where they look at a movie, a historical movie, and then now I want you to go compare it to the real story. Uh, and, it, and it's a big list to whatever people are interested in, but I added self-made to it and I had one student watch it and, and write a paper about it uh, and came up with you know a lot of the comparisons that you just mentioned. Uh, you know, they liked the film, but you know, they, they left so much out of the story. Right. Yeah, yeah, but it is, I'm so glad you do that. Um, because I think that especially these days, fewer and fewer people are reading anything <laughs> or you know, more than a paragraph. And people are getting their history from games and from the phone and from movies and Netflix certainly has our attention. So it's important to be able to send people and, and let them, you know, dig a little deeper and you might find that it's actually more interesting. Well, yeah, and, and develop those skills, right? No, understand the difference between uh, entertainment or infotainment and reality. Exactly. But we are, we're in a we're in an era of unreality. <laughs> yes, we are, yeah. For those of us who love history and facts. <laughs> yeah, they, these are skills that people death uh, sorely need to develop. <laughs> right. Uh, so this um, uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. I it's been it's a huge honor to talk to you. Uh, if people want to learn more about you or your work or Madam C J Walker, uh, where can they go? So we have two websites: aleliabundles.com, a l e l i a bundles.com, and madamcjwalker.com, m a d a m cjwalker.com. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am at Alelia Bundles. Perfect. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today. Kevin, thank you very much. I can't wait. <laughs> 
Well, thank you for joining me for this episode of Can't Make This Up. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alelia Bundles. Uh, if you are interested in Madam C.J. Walker and you want to check out her book, On Her Own Ground, there is a link for you in the description of this episode in your podcast app. Uh, excellent book. I highly recommend checking it out. If you are new to Can't Make This Up or you have been listening for a while and you are enjoying the show, uh, consider heading over to wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Uh, leave a rating on the show. Leave a review. Uh, I saw that in the past week, uh, a couple people left five-star reviews. They didn't leave any comments, but they left five-star reviews. So if you were one of those people, thank you very much. That means a lot. Uh, and if you would like to consider leaving a comment, I would love to give you kudos on the next episode. If you would like to connect with me uh, online on social media, uh, you can find me at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at CMTU History. And if you would like to support the podcast and gain access to extra goodies, uh, the show has a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash CMTU History. All right, that's going to be it for a couple weeks. Uh, probably won't have a new episode until early February, uh, but I'm in the process of talking with a lot of publicists, getting some books shipped to me, uh, and doing a lot of heavy reading. So uh, there's going to be some good stuff ahead for the first part of 2021. See you guys next time. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.